and welcome to this episode of the new podcast from Probe Ministries. I am Probe Ministries Research Associate Paul Rutherford. I'll be your host today, and we got a really exciting episode on tap for you. I'm excited to have a, a conversation today about the cosmos, something that we have not yet broached a conversation on, something that is interesting and intriguing in terms of exploring creation, exploring the world, exploring the things that God made that's uh, beyond culture, beyond literature, beyond um, some of the, the normal things that we've talked about in the in past episodes, things like the Bible, God's specific revelation, which is great, but looking more into the creation. And I'm excited to have guests in studio today. Today's going to be the first guest of our non-probe staff member. Uh, our guest today is my good friend, Dan Ray. Dan, glad to have you. Hello, Paul. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad you're here. Uh, in many ways, good friend of the ministry, in many ways, doing kind of co-laboring together in the kingdom for the ministry, similar vision, similar desire, similar heart, similar passion to see the body built up and see the body. Uh, for you who are listening now, you know that Probe exists to help believers think biblically, help believers be confident ambassadors for Christ about every aspect of life, not just about can you do a Bible study? Can you share the gospel? But how the truth of God impacts every area of life. And so today's episode with you, Dan's going to be a really interesting conversation uh, about things that I, I'll be honest, I don't think about often. I don't think about much. And this is definitely not my specialty. Yeah, most people, I find is one of the reasons we wrote the book is a lot of people have, if I can put it colloquially, for a lot of us in the church, we read Genesis like, in the beginning, God created the earth. And we have become sort of myopically focused on what's down here and have forgotten probably the largest thing that God has created is the heavens. And they are largely for, for many of us, not just Christians, but, but for many of us, uh, an insignificant part of our daily lives. Indeed. But before we get ahead of ourselves, because I know there's something you're really passionate about and you can certainly go and go. I just want to let you who are listening now know uh, a little bit about Dan. Dan, you are a, I would say, a jack of many trades. You have done many, many things in your life, including being a school teacher. Uh, probably would call yourself a lay astronomer. You do hold an MA in apologetics from HBU, Houston Baptist University, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And your thesis explore the contemporary relevance of C.S. Lewis cosmological imagination in the Chronicles of Narnia in particular. Uh, you also have your own podcast, right? I do. Tell us about that. It's on Patreon and Podbean. Wayne, my co-host, runs it on Podbean. I run it on Patreon, and it is available on iTunes. What's it called? Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Yeah, so on Patreon, I Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens. And I started it with a British accent long ago. <laughs> two, two years ago, we started it in the Probe Studios, well, in the in the Hope Center Studios downstairs. <laughs> but it's uh, Good Heavens. It's a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. On Patreon, and then Wayne calls it the human side of astronomy on Podbean. So you can find us mm. on iTunes, Good Heavens, the human side of astronomy. It's all I like fr- that. It's all free. I like that. The human side of astronomy. Yes. That's real interesting. And that's somewhat of what we're going to talk about today, because what we're going to talk about today is the interesting story of your new book. And the book is called The Story of the Cosmos, right? And it's co-authored by you and... Paul Gould. Dr. Paul M. Gould. Dr. Paul Gould. Yes. Co-authored by the both of you guys. And what I really want to talk about today is the interesting story by which this book was produced. But before we get into the story, why don't you tell us something about the story of the cosmos, the book? Well, it, it, we, it, since we're here at Probe, it, it started with, uh, with some help from Probe Associates, uh, raising some support and getting some people involved and interested 
in an event that came out of my master's degree at Houston Baptist University. During my study, I met a Hubble Space Telescope scientist, an astrophysicist who was a 20-some year veteran with, with working with the Space Telescope. Uh, he came to Houston Baptist to present his work with Hubble, and he is a Christian as well. His name is Dr. Anton Kokomower, and I met him after the presentation and, and shook his hand and everything and um, contacted him by email, and I said, I'm coming down to Houston to see you had a public email. And so we kept a correspondence for a while uh, that uh, kept going after the event and, and kept going until I'd finished my master's degree. And uh, he expressed interest in wanting to read my thesis. So I, was, I had the delightful opportunity to stay in touch with a Hubble Space Telescope astrophysicist who was also a Christian. So that was very inspiring and very encouraging for me. And then my thesis advisor, Dr. Michael Ward, who does appear in the book with us, uh, is a C.S. Lewis scholar. He wrote his book, Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, that I did my, uh, on which I did my thesis. So I delighted in that book. I loved working with Michael. And uh, at the end of my completion of my master's degree, I somewhat jokingly through email suggested to both Michael and Anton that they do a joint presentation. Michael talks about C.S. Lewis and Narnia, and Dr. Kokomore talks about the Hubble Space Telescope. I didn't think they were going to... I thought, well, that's a nice idea, Dan, but we're not gonna, we don't have time to do this. And they both consented. They both... That sounds like a great idea. I couldn't believe it. Hmm. So they, they gave me the green light. They said, go ahead, Daniel. You, you organize it. I'm like, what? What do you mean, me organize it? Mm -hmm. I, I don't have any organizational capacity. Never put one of these things on. What do I do? What do I do? So uh, I contacted uh, some friends, and including uh, Byron, who works here at Probe, and and we started to think of ways in which we could raise funds to bring both Dr. Kokomore and Dr. Ward to Texas to have a, an evening event where we talked about Lewis, C.S. Lewis and Narnia. And we talked about uh, Hubble Space Telescope stuff. And uh, so that was basically a year and a half of planning that we actually did that, raising the funds, promoting the event, uh, getting ground level interest in it. And then we ended up having it of March of 2018 at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and that's where I met Paul. And Paul was so enamored by the whole idea that he suggested to me that we we make a book of this. And so the event was called mm -hmm. Astrophysics and Fantasy, Hubble Meets Narnia. And uh, we spoke about it on uh, Point of View with Kirby um, before the event and uh, talked it up in and around Dallas, got some support, handed out flyers. I went down to the Pearl Museum on the sidewalk and was handing out flyers and talking to people <laughs> and trying to talk to churches and getting people involved. And uh, we had a, over 200 people attend, and it was fascinating. I mean, when when uh, both speakers were, were talking, it was pin drop silent in, in the auditorium. And it was just, it was so amazing uh, that Paul's idea was to carry it forward in, in book form. That's and fantastic. So that's basically, that's the small version of the story. That's how it all came together. Okay. So that's the small version of the beginning prologue of how the book came together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if someone were to pick up a copy of the story of the cosmos, what are they going to find in it? Well, what flowered out of that event was something that Paul and I and the rest of our contributors would, would say is a very ancient idea that how do, how do things combine so, you know, in our day and age, we separate a lot of things. We have our nine to five, we have our weekends, we have our church activities, we have 
you know, soccer and whatever else we do. And, mm-hmm. and if we work in a professional environment, we have subcategories and departments of sub departments and departments. Everybody's categorized. Everybody's lockstep walled off from each other. And we're compartmentalized. We don't know how it all fits together. Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy. Yeah. Somebody knows how it all fits together. Even in the sciences, we've reduced everything to their compartmental mm-hmm. categories. There's nothing wrong with categorizing things. But what we've what we've bereft ourselves is of knowing how. All things fit together. How do things go together? What does my church life have to do with my nine to five life? What does my, uh, you know, my weekend soccer thing have to do with anything that I do at work? Well, how did what is how do I make sense of my life if, if life itself is so compartmentalized? Uh, and so what we did is combine astrophysics with the fantasy writings of C.S. Lewis, and it just doesn't seem like two things that could possibly go together. What does a what does fantasy writing have to do with astrophysics? Indeed. I uh, think that's the big question. That's the elephant of the question. Well, how are these two how are connected? These, how are these connected? How are these right. connected? Well, my research, I know you'd mentioned my master's degree. It's a little esoteric, but uh, I read a lot of secular cosmology uh, at the popular level. I'm not a cosmologist. I'm not a physicist. I'm mm-hmm. a guy... I'm a guy that shops at Target or whatever. I'm just a layperson who has a vested interest in in what astronomers and science tell me. So I read a lot of the popular works. And over and over again, the one thing that was resplendently clear was that all of these scientists are gifted communicators, but they're all telling a story. And they're all telling an imaginative story about things that cannot be empirically confirmed by telescopes. There's a lot of philosophy, a lot of speculation about Mm -hmm. what's beyond our universe. What does our universe contain? How long has it been around? Where did it come from? You know, very compelling narratives about things that we cannot finally empirically confirm. So there is at once a great deal of imagination and philosophy and speculation and theorizing that go on in, in not just cosmology, but in all the sciences. There are a lot of gaps that we fill with stories. Now, I'm not saying this is an outright criticism of science, only to point out that science has a creative element. Um, one of the, I, I think he's an astrophysicist, uh, J. Richard Gott, came up with this conception of the universe that he himself said looks like something you would find in a Dr. Seuss book. Uh, Roger Penrose has said that uh, if we don't start thinking in terms of fantasy, we're not going to come at the reality of what the universe is really like, because the more the physics uncovers what the small parts of our world are like, the more fantastic it becomes. And uh, only the gifted communicators like Werner Heisenberger in the early 50s, philosophy, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of physics, that you have to tell a story to the public in order to be able to translate your mathematics into story form. So astrophysics and fantasy go together far more than you would think. It's not just hard empirical science, that, that scientists themselves have to think creatively. And we too, anybody, when you tell a story, you are thinking creatively and making analogies. So astrophysics and fantasy go together because you have to think fantastically. You have to think of ways that stretch your imagination. You have to think of conceptions that people have not thought of. Mm. The people that win Nobel Prizes in science and literature are people with with fantastic imaginations. That's not a criticism per se of science. It just demonstrates that communicating science or anything requires metaphors, similes, parables, and stories, which is exactly how Jesus communicated to us all the time. He used things from nature to communicate kingdom truths. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. We take the, the kingdom truths of the heavens and showed them how Lewis loved cosmology. And we won't go into, don't have time to go into it I'm sure on this broadcast, but but Lewis's Narnia Chronicles are replete with medieval cosmology and the imagery of medieval cosmology, because that's mm-hmm. a, a model of the universe that Lewis loved for its aesthetic values. 
So, and that, you, you can't argue that uh, Narnia has been hugely influential, but it is replete with, with medieval imagery from medieval cosmology. So the idea that Paul and I had was to, to reinvest this idea into the culture that our imaginative thinking goes hand in hand with our science thinking. If, you, if you're good at your job, you're coming up with stuff. You're coming up with ideas. You're mm-hmm. constantly having to innovate and think creatively. So we hope to stir not only just, it's not just a book about science, but to stir your imagination and your thoughts about how things go together. So this could be very, you could read this book and not know anything about science. It could be very applicable to, to your life at home, to your life at work. How do I start to think creatively? How do two things that don't seem like they go together, how could they possibly go together? Well, it takes creativity to see it. And those are the people that, you know, make the advances in science and things like that. So um, that's kind of my long explanation for why I see things going together as they do. And that's kind of where, what's behind the book, that things go together more than you think they do. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I think one of the interesting insights you contributed there in terms of the answer to the question, how are these things connected? How are these two very disparate disciplines in the academic world in terms of astrophysics and fantasy or literature? How are they connected, right? That, that was the question we were trying to go at. And what I heard you say was, well, you basically, I think you said two things. And one was that, hey, when we look at the kind of arc of history, when we look at science historically, when we look at things that even necessarily not the history of science, but also what science is telling us today, it is telling a story. Mm. Maybe the scientists themselves aren't telling a story, but their findings are telling a story to mm. those of us who are listening and learning. Um, that is telling a story. So there's narrative in the science. And then mm. two, what I heard you say was that good scientists think creatively. Yes. There is a creative aspect to the scientific discipline, to the scientific work, scientific endeavor. Man, that's interesting. Yeah, well, that, you look that's, at... That's a different way of thinking about science. I don't typically think of creativity and science being Well, you look together. at... Uh, uh, one of the inspirations of this book for me goes all the way back to my childhood and watching Carl Sagan in Cosmos in the 1980s. Uh, the man was a gifted communicator. No doubt. And he was a, obviously a very knowledgeable scientist, but he could speak... He was very comfortable in different disciplines. He loved fantasy. He loved, I mean, he, he wrote contact with his wife, Andrewian. Um, he was a gifted communicator of science and, and could communicate on multiple levels, just like C.S. Lewis, who was a professional literary scholar, a lay apologist, and, and a writer of children's fantasy and, and science fiction novels. So he had a three-tiered level of being able to communicate. Good scientific communicators have a three-tiered level of communication. They are good at their science. They are excellent communicators. And they, they bring a passion to both of those things that light up people's imaginations. I want to be a scientist. That's what yeah. Carl Sagan has done. If nothing else, if you don't agree with any of his materialism, you can't argue his influence has had a tremendous reach in the last 40 years. So, yeah, the, the one thing for, for all of us to do is to stop, look, listen. You go to Barnes & Noble, you go to the science section, you go to the cosmology section, you pick up a book, Lawrence Krauss, Sean Carroll. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, these people have a gift of communication. You may completely disagree with their materialism, but they are, Paul, telling the narrative mm-hmm. of science. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. absolutely. You know, there was one part in your introduction to your book, Story of the Cosmos, I mm-hmm. thought was really interesting, and I thought really well articulated kind of what you're talking about in terms of what you're trying to speak to through this book of explaining the modern predicament, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Looking at your book, this first edition this is on page 16, but C.S. Lewis believed our emphasis on a purely scientific and mathematical understanding of the cosmos actually did up emptying the universe of its glory. 
though only through our darkened imaginations. Lewis believed that by our penchant for excluding everything else but the numbers from our explanations about the universe, we've ultimately emptied the heavens of their glorious meaning. And here's the interesting part. You're quoting Lewis here. By reducing nature to her mathematical elements, end quote, modern naturalistic models of the universe, pick up quote, substituted a mechanical for a henial or animistic conception of the universe. The world was emptied first of her indwelling spirits, then of her occultic sympathies and antipathies, and finally of her colors, smells, and tastes. Yeah. Yeah. So what Lewis is getting at there is that you just think of a relationship between a husband and a wife. You can know your wife by the numbers, how tall she is, how old she is, how much she weighs, what her, you know, what her blood sugar count is, what her mm-hmm. cholesterol count is, um, how much money she made at work. You can certainly know your spouse, husband or wife, that way. And, mm-hmm. and there's, of course, those numbers are, quote, true and factual. But but no one no would doubt. argue that you're going to have a long lasting relationship if you only look at your spouse in terms of numerical identity. Uh, and this is essentially, in one sense, where our culture is, that we are bound up with uh, this idea that numerical identity is of primary importance, especially mm-hmm. in salaried positions, and especially in terms of if numbers on Twitter or followers on YouTube or yes. how many books I sold or how many people are in our church or, you know, how many people have I reached for Jesus today or how many, you know, how many, how many, how many, how many. We are a quantified culture. Yes. Uh, and this goes all the way back 500 years. And, and Johannes Kepler was really, if you go back to Kepler. Who's Kepler? Johannes Kepler was a 16th century mathematician, astronomer who mathematician, came up with the astronomer. The three laws of planetary motion by taking the observational data from Tycho Brahe. Kepler was able to crunch the numbers, if you will, and come up with how planets really moved. And these men operated in two different worlds. But what started to happen uh, from Kepler onwards, and then, of course, through Galileo and Newton, is that we started to uncover, really, to discover the mathematical resonance that the universe speaks to us. Now, Mm. we're not denigrating math. Let's, Let's get Lewis is not arguing that math is bad or it's bad to know things numerically. I'm glad you added that. And yeah, that was we're not, not. I was clear from the context, but I yeah, we're on not. That when I quoted we're it. not decrying quantification of things. What we are decrying is a quantification of everything. That quantification is the primary way in which we can know something is true. What's the the mega electron volt mass of the electron? What's the mega electron volt mass of the proton or neutron? What is the speed of light? This is predominantly how we know the universe today. But for the secular materialist, what do these numbers mean? And that's where the philosophy, the creativity, that's where the controversy lies in trying to discern what that means. Some scientists today are trying to brute fact these numbers, um, but secular science cannot come up with a cohesive rationale for why these numbers even exist. And so what's happened, Paul, is that the numbers have become causal agents. The numbers have taken on the capacity of divine nature. The numbers are what are being argued as being the things that do stuff. But numbers are abstractions, so they have no causal properties or powers. And what is transpiring now in our in the last hundred years, especially, is this reliance upon knowing the universe mathematically in a way that you would maybe just know your spouse mathematically mm-hmm. or, or numerically. That quantification has become deified. You know, and to add some clarity there to what you've just been speaking to, and to the reason I pulled out that quote from from the book where you're also quoting Lewis, was to pick up on kind of uh, this notion of the effect 
on the human side of culture, the human side of civilization, the human effect to even let's just talk about the individual to the soul of an individual who exists today in a 21st century context in which we are recording this podcast, uh, as to say several centuries ago. And I think that's what Lewis was getting at here when he talks about emptying the heavens of their glory. Mm. The, some of the context uh, in, in your chapter here was that the Hebrew notion for glory I don't know how to say it. Chabod, chabod, yeah. I don't speak. Yeah, I don't speak Hebrew, he- Hebrew so. but it's something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea with it connotes heaviness mm-hmm. or, or heft, mm-hmm. which is a really fascinating yeah. I- idea to add to this idea, this notion of glory. Uh, but that being emptied of the heavens, when we treat, when we perceive our creation in this way, in this naturalistic way, when it basically goes from what I would call 3D to flat, we're just looking mm-hmm. at phenomenon now. I think what Lewis is trying to communicate is it when it, when he says things like, we substituted the mechanical for the henial uh, or the animistic, there's no, there's no longer action as much. There's no longer, what did he say there? It's been uh, emptied of its spirits and its fairies and its sympathies. And that might sound strange to us, except that I think what he's talking about is, is disenchantment. It's exactly. like a, it's like a Peter Berger, as he described the disenchantment of really since the enlightenment in particular, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the effect on that disenchantment allows everything to suddenly become mechanical where there was mystery, where there was awe, where there was this fascination, this inspiration, this creativity, all these very human qualities that you've just been talking about that we extol that I think are great, that I think the, I think is part of the Imago Dei. I think it's part of the way God made us as part of the image that we bear in God. But these things suddenly have so much less value. These things suddenly start to disappear when the effect of this naturalistic understanding of the universe makes everything suddenly flat. The heavens lose some of their glory. And I'm highlighting that because just because that's really the context, not to rail on naturalism because no. I know having talked with you even just lunch before we turn on record here you you don't really want to rail on naturalism and that's not really the point of the book it's as not. much as it is to extol the virtue of inspiration and of creativity mm-hmm. and of narrative yeah. and how beautiful narrative can be and really how the lord who is and who has created and who is sovereign has really told a story through his creation just yeah. simply looking at the heavens you can see a story. You can hear a story. Right. I think uh, polemic rhetoric is very tempting and it's very easy. And, you know, we can easily be caught up into being against things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure all of us who've been in church long enough to know that there have been several movements throughout the last several decades where we are, especially politically, where we have to be against something. That our platform is more what we're against than what we're for. And we need yeah. more. We need we need more of a proactive apologetic that inspires people. Um, but we are a very pragmatic. And Dr. Gould, Paul Gould, and I uh, did a podcast together a couple of months ago about Dr. Gould's books uh, and reenchantment. And Paul talks about the fact that our culture has become very pragmatic by the numbers. What do I have to do to pass the test? What do I have to do to? What are the minimal requirements I must meet for my job? Yes. Uh, those, Does this course in school help me yes, get a better job? Right. Does it get me a better score on my SAT or into yes. a better college or, or, or better neighborhood? Better paying or, job. Or better paying job. A better car. Yeah. And it, it's all quantified. Very practical. More square footage in my house. Bigger mm-hmm. car. Better gas mileage. Uh, more in the bank account, it numbers, 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 numbers. Yes. And of course, going back to what you said earlier, Lewis is not advocating we go back to a time where we think fairies are in 
trees or, or panentheism or pantheism. Thank he's, you for adding that. Yeah, he's not he he's not advocating that. that at all. He what he's saying is that that it's like your house. Let's just say a family with kids, and you know your house. There's a difference between a house and a home. Uh, let's say that uh, you're a kid and, and you go to school and your mom, you get used to your mom taking you to school, right? Over time, you get older, you enjoy talking to your mom in school. She gives you a muffin on the way to school. You guys have talks and you sing songs, whatever you enjoy your relationship with your mom. But over time, let's say that the, the, the reason that you got to school, your explanation for the reason for how you got to school as a child was more a matter of the mechanical combustion of, of your engines of the car. So the, the primary way in which you now know as an adult is who has matured beyond childhood is it wasn't really mom that got you to school it was the motor in the car and it's it's kind of where we're at we've taken mom dad uh out of the picture and we've explained everything by what's under the hood and we think that's the ultimate causal explanation for Mm -hmm. everything and we've abandoned the human side we've abandoned the relationship we've abandoned the love of singing songs with mom and talking to dad and and having our parents tell us we loved us and that that relational aspect we've become so pragmatic even as christians that we've lost the relational contact with what God has made. Uh, we've lost a relational contact with God through what he has made. We've basically ignored for more or less what God has made. We've handed the physical world over to the materialistic sciences. And we've just said, just give me earth and what I need to focus on for my career. I don't need to worry about stars. Oh, that's the sun. Oh, look, the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, maybe I can see a star too, or trees don't matter. Or I don't need to be distracted by blue whale watching or looking at flowers. Who and it's a sad day for it. It is. And yeah. our life is so much less rich. Right. Because of it and for it. We are technologically driven, um, you know, myself included. Uh, we live and breathe and swim in a technological not quite a utopia, but but the predominant <laughs> way in which we know our lives is is mediated through screens and technology. It is these days, and uh, we are. And Michael talks about in his chapter uh, how we have been completely satisfied by taking in the image of something rather than actually going out and experiencing that thing. The, the having the incarnate participation of experiencing the otherness, the ontology of other things. Right there's a real flower. There's a snake. There's a raccoon. There's an owl hooting in my tree. There's the star beetle juice, you know, sitting right above me. There's the Milky Way. There's a giant sequoia redwood. And you're, you're experiencing the ontology, the otherness of things. When you only mediate that through images and screens, you're not really experiencing those no. things as they are. No. And that encounter as they are is what is sorely lacking. We, we just simply do not engage creation as much uh, as our forebearers did who, who founded the modern scientific enterprise, who were literally physically engaged with creation. It's one yes. of the successes of Darwin was he got out there and did things with his hands. You know, he was a naturalist extraordinaire because they didn't have TV. You get outside, you play with rocks, you look at birds, you mm-hmm. study nature. And we're just, we're a culture inside behind our screens on our butts. And Yep. What you're talking about there is really kind of the condition that we wanted to speak to today. And while we're getting close on time for this episode to come to an end, I think probably that's just to be clear for you who are listening, that that's uh, one thing we wanted to underscore was to hopefully by this conversation, inspire you who are listening to go out and look at the stars. Yeah. Man, just look up. And find make a little bit of an effort. I mean, if you're in the Metroplex, you're going to have to drive a little ways, but not that far. We we have some pretty good dark sky areas that you can go. Just I mean, I live 80 miles from where we are here in the studio, uh, but I live in dark skies. I live in northwest Parker County, and it's really beautiful. I can see the Milky Way coming right outside of my door. It's it's really easy to do it on a dark sky night. Um, but Sounds yeah, gorgeous. We it's one of those things, Paul. We're just kind of like we're going to have to make an effort to do this kind of stuff. We want it easy. And it's not. Engagement with nature has to be deliberate. It has to be 
I think it's easier done in community when you have people that you can do okay. it with okay. rather than by yourself. But you sure. can certainly contemplate nature by yourself. The but, more, the merrier. Right. We're star not parties. No, star parties. There's star parties all over the Metroplex. You just got to find a place to go. But but get outside. Go to a go somewhere. You know, and just engage nature incarnately. And and for me, one of the convictions that I had as I was writing this book was. You know, if I spend as much time learning stars or getting out underneath the starry skies and learning star names as I do watching YouTube, what difference would that make in my life? Mm. A, a huge difference. What a great question. It's, it's a meditative act. And we think, what's the purpose of meditation? That sounds very Eastern and transcendental and yes. new agey. And I don't want to sit under the stars and hum. No. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm advocating meditating on the idea of Jesus created these things. And as David meditated in Psalm 8... When I look at the moon and the stars, the works of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? So a mm. real incarnate ontological engagement with other things as they are, um, and Holly talks about this in her chapter, is, is the kind of meditation we're talking about, a meditation on creation with Christ in mind. That's good. That's good. I appreciate the the clarification there, the correction, I suppose, of of my admonition to our listener, just to look up. Well, it may not be that easy. That's that's a start if that's all you can it's do. It's a start, right? But going somewhere where you can find a, as you what, what did you call them, Dark Sky Park? Yes. And how do we find those? Can you give a reference on how to how to do that? Great question. Plenty of resources out there, as you can imagine. The first step I would recommend is uh, an acquaintance of mine runs Saving Our Stars. Dot org. Okay. It's not commercial. She's not selling anything. There's not a secret trick. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's all free information about how you can get involved with basic astronomy and how you can do ways even around your house of reducing light pollution. Um, and okay. so it's an excellent resource getting started basic astronomy stuff. And then she connects you to, and you can connect yourself, whether you go to her website or not, you can go to the International Dark Sky Association's website, and they list dark sky parks. The International Dark Sky Association has legitimately recognized as a gold tier dark sky area. And there are a few here in Texas. And what they are are parks and places where you can go and see stars like you wouldn't believe, where mm. there is relatively little or no light pollution. It is one of the most fantastic experiences, even for somebody like me who Sounds loves astronomy. Amazing. I don't get tired of the sight. And it's just beautiful. Finding a dark sky park. Uh, going anywhere, it, it's fantastic. And once you do it, you, you're just you're hooked. That sounds amazing. And tell our listener how they can get a copy of your book. Well, you can just about any place where a book you can buy a book. Uh, it's Barnes and Noble. Walmart carries them. You can get it on Amazon, of course. Christian book distributors. Okay. Uh, there's Kindle and paperback available, and I think they're about fourteen or fifteen right now. Okay, great. And one more clarification, I think, just so we're communicating really clearly. When I when I say your book, the book is a collection of chapters basically essays from multiple authors right right but right. you are the what is your title editor general I, editor co-editor 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 with paul and a co-contributor i right. wrote the first part and the last part and i put the index together right right <laughs> and we're obviously having the conversation because you put it together and the index i'm sure that was a lot of hard work that too. was a week's worth of work and that's that's uh it makes it, it much better thank you for doing that oh yeah i love it so thanks for listening with us today. I hope this has been helpful to you. hope this has inspired you to see how God's good creation and God's revealed will through his creation testifies to his glory and testifies to how, how good he is. And as just one more way you can think biblically about creation and everything else in it. If you ever have any more questions, feel free to check out our website, www.probe.org. Dan, you've been a fantastic guest. I've really enjoyed having time with you today. Thanks for being here. Yes, thank you for having me, Paul. Paul.